Happy Monday, Radicals. It's a brand new week. What do you say we make it a good one? Let's kick it off with an in-depth interview with Nick O'Kelly, author of Live on the Margin. And let's talk about how you can design and live a life of adventure. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets, and today is Monday, February 2, 2015. Welcome to the show. Today, let's talk about not living the deferred life plan, but rather how you can design and build a life where everything is integrated together and you can enjoy some pretty cool adventures long before 65. Nick is a very cool dude, and this is a very cool interview. It's pretty hardcore. We talk a little bit about, uh, well, a lot about financial planning. We talk a little bit about uh, how to fund financial planning. We talk a little bit about trading. Nick and his co-author, Patrick Schulte, uh, wrote in the book, Live on the Margin, and developed this very strange cocktail of personal life advice and trading advice. It's a really interesting book, uh, and I I definitely recommend it. It's a really fun book, but it's this very strange mixture of stock charts and options trades and how they all work combined with life advice advising you to to sell your house and sell all your junk and move to a tropical island somewhere it's quite good uh, it's quite fun i'll i'll um, uh, i'll mention a, a little bit more on it at the end of the interview if you care uh, if you care to go and buy the book and check it out um, i was really thankful that nick came on the on the show i first got in touch with him after i interviewed his co-author pat schulte if you haven't heard that episode it's actually episode 50 of the show and that it was entitled from an eight dollar an hour job after college to financial independence at the age of 30 to 10-plus years of global travel with family. And you can find that at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash 50. This interview with Nick is we cover a number of different areas. And what I was fascinated to hear is since I wasn't familiar with Nick's story prior to the interview, I was fascinated to pull out of him kind of just some of the twists and turns of his life. And as you'll hear in the interview, it's been a very interesting life. Nick is a sailor. He's a pilot. He's a, uh, an entrepreneur. He's done all kinds of interesting things. And and you're going to enjoy his thoughts on how to integrate those with finance. We even get we even get a little touchy feely during the middle of the interview, and not touchy touchy feely in the sense of a little bit emotional, you know, a little bit of self help. <laughs> so be forewarned. But enjoy the interview. I'll be back at the end to wrap things up. Here we go. So Nick, welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. I appreciate you being with me today. Are you kidding me? Thank you for having me. This is an <laughs> honor. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to this conversation because we're going to talk a little bit about some of my favorite topics, which is, in essence, summed down to to its own to the essence of the subject is how to create an ideal lifestyle at a reasonable age. So not necessarily pushing things off until the age of eighty to really live, but how do we create our ideal lifestyle at an earlier age? And you and your family, you've been able to do a lot of that. Uh, I'd love for you to share, uh, as, an, as a beginning introduction, I'd love for you to share a little bit about your story as, uh, and your progression from where you came from as a young person uh, through till today. Wow. 
Well, I feel like we're on a first date kind of, and it's the get to know you question. <laughs> it is a little bit that way. <laughs> how, can we, how can we pack it all into just a couple minutes without boring people? I was a poor child, which came, no. Um, <laughs> um, I was raised by uh, hippie parents in the forest in Port Townsend, Washington. We uh, literally cut down a patch of trees and my dad built a house. Um, I was, uh, we were, I don't want to say we were poor, maybe financially we didn't have much money uh, growing up and money was never really a focus for me. So I was uh, much more of a free-spirited child and really only uh, started thinking about what money really meant and for my lifestyle uh, later in life. So I was really free to pursue my passions. Um, I originally wanted to be a, uh, a pilot. Actually, I am a pilot. Um, I went and got the licenses and was headed down a commercial track and uh, just I spent a summer up in Valdez, Alaska. I didn't have the hours to um, to actually fly the bush plane, so I was basically a, a glorified baggage boy and, and gas man. And uh, getting to know those pilots, I came to realize that even the most exciting flying in the world uh, still got really boring. And um, and so I, I was maybe a little lost for a couple of years uh, getting into college and, um, and found that I'd become fascinated with meteorology, with weather. Um, so I got done with my undergraduate and uh, went off and got my master's in atmospheric and oceanic sciences. And this is where I, I really kind of came into my own in terms of, uh, uh, of what took me into the trading world and um, what is, I guess, set the stage for some of my financial, I don't want to say success, but some of the skills that I learned uh, that allowed me to head off traveling. Um, in meteorology, atmospheric and oceanic sciences, um, I was interested in forecasting, you know, which is predicting the future, basically. It's about, uh, well, it's about a couple things. First of all, it's about pattern recognition, and then it's also about some fairly high-level uh, mathematics, geophysical fluid dynamics, and statistical analysis, and that sort of thing. I just found that I had this talent for predicting the future. And um, so I worked as a uh, meteorologist on television um, for, gosh, I think it came out to be 10, 12, 13 years uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, this was at the, when I first came to the Bay Area, it was the height of the dot-com bubble. And what I thought was a great salary, you know, working on television, forecasting the weather, turned out to be not so great because <laughs> there was a lot right. of guys, a lot of people my age, you know, relatively young, my my mid to late 20s, that just seemed to be killing it, man. I mean, mm -hmm. they had all these stock options, and I basically came to trading as a retail investor, just a total noob, um, you know, just watching CNBC and, and open up an E-Trade account, and I just started, uh, I just started trading. And um, I, my, my trading was not sophisticated at all. I mean, it, it's laughable now. It was, I would basically watch the hot stocks, buy them, <laughs> you know, and as soon as people started bad-mouthing them, I'd sell. And it was like, you know, like a year later, you know, I, I was, I don't remember the exact percentages, but I think I turned my I don't know, a few thousand bucks, maybe it was eight, ten grand into like 20. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I was like, wow, this is pretty easy, man. And I wasn't trading options. I wasn't trading any derivatives or anything. I was just buying securities 
and selling them when they didn't look hot anymore. And you were just doing straight uh, long long calls. Not you weren't you weren't selling short or anything like that. Oh right, right. I, I didn't even know what that meant. Okay, got it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, um, there was a sort of a transition. You know, nothing in life is ever very simple. But you know, um, I finally had enough cash in the bank and and uh, got a promotion to work and I started thinking about oh let's you know I want to buy a house man I was we were living in a pool house in the Saratoga Hills which was awesome I mean it was gorgeous but you know we were in a 400 square, square foot pool house and I, I still aspired to more and um, and so I we sold out stock and um, you know that was kind of coupled with this this realization that all those people that I'd meet that had these crazy stock options, they were like now on their second and third gig and they were looking for the new thing. And this is round about 2000, you know, or creeping up on it. And I basically accidentally sold all my high tech stock at the, the, the height of the bubble. You know? <laughs> Nicely done. Yeah, yeah. And so we bought this piece of crap, uh, pre, uh, this crummy house. I'm trying not to use foul language. <laughs> crummy <appreciate> house. <laughs> um, in kind of a so-so part of uh, San Francisco. And we started pouring all of our money and blood and sweat and tears into this, this junky house. And everybody around us was doing the exact same thing. And I started to notice a pattern. I was like, gosh, you know, if you follow the herd a little bit, but you stay ahead of them, you can make some coin here. Mm -hmm. So as my neighborhood was improving and, you know, everybody was, you know, sprucing up the yards and stuff, you know, we kind of finished all the renovations we wanted to do. And, uh, and literally somebody knocked on the door and said, you know, you want to sell? And we were like, okay. And we happened to sell basically at the height of the first, people don't really remember this, but the first housing bubble, um, at least in the Bay Area, uh, around about 2002. Wow. And this is, yeah, this is where we kind of enter the, uh, the world of travel because I, I come from a, a family of sailors, my aunts and uncles. Um, I, I have a big family, uh, big into sailing, big uh, transoceanic sailors, and I always had that dream. So my wife and I bought a big boat turned out to be way too big <laughs> and uh, moved on board and and sold everything and and uh, and headed out for for an adventure um, uh, hopefully oh, my phone's going off sorry about that um, hopefully I'm not getting too boring here but um, when I headed off sailing you know I initially thought okay not having an income you know quitting my job would be now, this would be fine, but I really felt this need to continue to generate income. So, got back into trading and got a little bit more sophisticated about it and kind of slowly dipped my toes into, um, into options trading and, and kind of just learned along the way without any real formal training. And um, that adventure lasted for, you know, a couple of years and then we came back and I went back into television. Um, and then felt this need to um, try my hand at entrepreneurial pursuits. I, I, I have this fire. I, I think from listening to you, you have it as well, this, mm -hmm. this kind of need to build my own thing. I, mm -hmm. I don't know. It, it's like an inner rebel or something like that right. that just that needs to have. It, it's not that I am anti-authority 
per se, but it's just I have this need to make this thing of my own, you know. It's kind of an adventure, you know, you feel like you can create something, and I think many entrepreneurs, uh, money is nice, freedom is nice, but many entrepreneurs, it's almost the it's almost a creative outlet to be able to build something that does something that you feel is important and be able to stand back and, and look and say, there's the work of my hands. Yeah, I, I'm really glad you, you said that because having been through a couple entrepreneurial pursuits now, um, I feel that money is kind of a, a, it's a, it's a barometer, it's a measuring stick. Right. But the successful entrepreneurs that I know, you know, they don't go out and you know, start buying a bunch of cool stuff. I mean, they they are proud of what they've created, and they dig the fact that they created it. And that's definitely what I came to realize. Um, so I started this company, um, and it was it was difficult. I didn't make as much money as I had made in television, but I certainly learned a lot about myself and about business, and was lucky enough to sell it, um, sell the company. Um, in early 2009, this happened to coincide um, with basically some divestiture I had, I had accomplished in 2008, um, which again happened to time the market very well. <laughs> <laughs> You're like the golden boy of market timing. <laughs> I yeah, you know, uh, I, I'm kind of coming from the the Mark Cuban school of thought. You know, a lot of especially fund managers will say, you know, you stick, stick your money with me, you can't time the market. And I'm like, no way, man. That's what it's all about. I mean, if you're paying attention, you absolutely can time the market. Mm -hmm. um, it's just realizing that the market means different things in different sectors. And so you can't just say the market's going up or the market's going down. It's like some parts of the market are going up, some are coming down. It just so happened that in 2008, I saw a lot of indicators that, that told me all right, it's time to absolutely um, pull the ripcord on real estate. I mean, so we, you know, we had a huge house at the time, and um, you know, we, you know, I said we got to get out of this. My wife was in agreement, and we initially listed for like God, I can't remember what it was. It's like, and this was the realtors advising. You know, they said he said I think we initially listed for one point one. And after 30 days, like nada, nothing. I was like, we got to get aggressive. We dropped it like 100k. It's still, like I think we had like two or three buyers come through, and this is a fantastic house. It's mm -hmm. gorgeous. Um, and I said, no, we got to get more aggressive. And, and I think I can't remember what the, the next cut was, but uh, but we bailed out of it. Still at a huge profit, but um, you know, when you see that things have turned, don't you know, don't get hesitant. I mean, right. when you see the writing on the wall, you've got to move. And uh, anyway, so I was divesting partially because I wanted to put money into my business and partially because um, because I could see the market was turning. I sold that business um, and we went off for another long sale, bought another boat, <laughs> and <laughs> ended off sailing. And um, since then, since 2009, we have been what I'd call... Uh, part-time uh, adventurers will we usually take two or three long I wouldn't even say vacations but trips per year you know six eight weeks um, so we're my wife and I are are, are working um, 
I'd say nine months of the year, ten months of the year, sometimes eight months, uh, other years, um, and then we're going off and seeing the world. So that's that's kind of how we do it. And and when we're traveling, um, I'm much more actively trading. Um, I'm indeed living on the margin, making money while we're while we're on the road. Are you primarily taking sailing trips? Um, we in the last year and a half, we have a a, a dog that we don't have children. We have a, a dog that we love to death, and she is getting older. And so a year ago, we kind of realized that she was not liking the boat so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we bought a, another small RV. We've had a couple RVs, and um, and so the last few trips have been on the road. Uh, but again, uh, I think we talked off-air about this. Uh, we're getting ready for a sailing adventure for this spring. We're going to head uh North from from Oregon, from Portland, and head up to Southeast Alaska, or almost to Southeast Alaska. So uh, we're both going by boat and by land. <laughs> That's neat. Yeah. What was the timeline? So how how old are you now? Uh, I am forty one. Okay. So the timeline, if we go back, uh, you're looking essentially where you said you worked for ten to thirteen years. So was your first major trip? At about the age of thirty, uh, when you after you worked as a meteorologist, I think it, yeah, it was like twenty eight. Yeah, we took off at twenty eight, and um, I, I won't get specifically into dollar figures, but we were we were not um, wealthy. We weren't retirement wealthy. We had I, I don't know. I think it was our net worth was probably three hundred something like that. Mm-hmm. So we had been fortunate with what we had made on the house and. You know, had, had worked hard. I was I was making a great salary uh, on television. My wife was working in high tech, so so that's what we initially took off with. Our free cash though was definitely less than a hundred. We put way too much into the boat. Right. We bought a really expensive boat. You don't have to do that. I mean, you can go off and have sailing adventures on a ten thousand dollar boat. You know, you don't need this big luxuries. But you know, I thought we needed everything. I we, the boat had a couple refrigeration systems, a scuba compressor. You know, just absolutely everything. <laughs> it had a washer and dryer. Wow. <laughs> wow. So uh, you thought you needed a washer and dryer, but the reality is you could probably <laughs> wear a bathing suit, uh, depending <laughs> on what ocean you're sailing, I guess. <laughs> you don't need many uh, many other clothes. No, no, no. I mean, my, my heart was in the right place. I, I had my wife, uh, and I talked about this at length in my first book, uh, Get Her On Board. My wife was definitely resistant as are many wives whose husbands want to go sail the great oceans. Um, so I wanted to recreate kind of uh, the lifestyle we had on land uh, uh, in a boat. You know, so I wanted extreme comfort. I wanted really big, at a 50-foot boat, you know, 35,000 pounds, just loaded to the gills. Because I thought, you know, the more comfortable she would, she was, you know, the happier we would be. And the irony is that you know, a boat that's, and I can back up and say any lifestyle that you want to create, you know, an alternative lifestyle, if you make it really big and complicated, it's going to wear you down in terms of how much time and energy and money that you have to put into maintaining it. Mm-hmm. So this big boat that we had and this complicated plan to sail around the world, man, I was working on this thing all the time. It right. was just, so, yeah, it was a heavy load. So. Um, yeah, we, we came back to uh, land-based life kind of, I got an opportunity that I couldn't resist in Denver to come back to television, you know, another fat salary and, and 
doing weather in a very exciting meteorological place. I mean, mm -hmm. Denver, you know, thunderstorms, big snows, big cold. It gets hot in the summer. It was, it was fantastic. Right. Uh, so, so we came back to land-based life. So we've, we've kind of been in and out of this adventure mode almost continuously since then. And that's, that's basically the, the lifestyle that we like. We're not full-time adventurers. So I, I, I wish I'd interviewed your wife separately. <laughs> I've actually, the audience has asked me, they said, um, you don't have enough women on the show. And I've put out a call. I said, hey, bring it on. You know, I, if you can help me find some, some guests, I do that. But it, it's, it's, I want to talk about your book, Get Her On Board, in, in a few minutes uh, and just see what you've learned. But probably what I should have done was talk to her first to see, <laughs> to see what you did well and what you didn't. Uh, my, I'm curious, was this part of a grand plan? So you went off sailing around the world in your late 20s. Was this part of a grand plan for adventure, or was this more of a, eh, this sounds fun, let's do it type of approach? I would say, to be honest, it was kind of a mixture of the two. I mean, what got us out the door was a grand plan. And what we realized right away was that doesn't work. I mean, ha having a grand plan, you're just going to set yourself up for disappointment or hurry along too fast or whatever. So, yeah, initially it was this big grand plan to go sail around the world. We did not sail around the world. We sailed down to Mexico and spent a season down in the Sea of Cortez and, and then decided we'd, we'd take a break. Um, so, yeah, initially it was like, okay, this is what we're going to do, and this is year one, and then we're going to be in the South Pacific and then New Zealand. And we came to realize, man, that's that's too much pressure. It's Our, our lifestyle now is... You know, we just kind of take off and often on a whim without really, we'll know which direction we're going, like north or south, but we really find a lot more fun and opportunity when we're just like open, you know, like to who we might meet. We're always meeting the most fascinating people. And some of those, by the way, have turned into like trading opportunities. Like I've met people who, you know, they're not giving me insider information, but have given me insights into industries I never would have thought of mm -hmm. that turned into very profitable trades. Um, so I, we treat the whole thing with much more loosey-goosey attitude um, than we used to. It's kind of a, a shift, and I wonder if it's something due to our U.S.-American culture or whether it's due to... Uh, I don't know what the, what the factor is, but it, it certainly seems, at least of the travel you know, travel logs that I've read of people who have gone out for extended travel and my own personal observation. It seems that we're wired to pursue, at least as U.S. Americans, we're wired to build these grand plans. And we're all about checking things off the list. Got to go to every country in the world, got to visit every continent, got to sail around the world, make a complete circumnavigation. <laughs> like we're, oh, you're we're, so right. We're prone to just checking these things off. And you read the lifestyle, and it's like we're just work, 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 work. You know, got to get, got to go, got to go, got to go, got to go, got to get to the next thing. Whereas uh, over time, it seems that travelers, uh, especially if they're doing extended travel, seem to mellow a bit and not worry. Oh, yeah. so much about getting to the next country, the next state, doing the next thousand miles, but checking the next box, but just simply slowing down and enjoying the, the day a little bit more. I think you're so right. I mean, um, yeah, that's, that's the major benefit that I see in travel, period, is just taking yourself out of your surroundings and, and being open to, to what's around you and really noticing things. It, it's just, you come back and just everything seems so much more rich and, and you just see things that you never would have seen before. And 
I've kind of noticed the same thing. I, I was, I think, a big fan of the travel blogs, but in general, I don't really read them much anymore because I, I do get this feeling like we're just kind of following a script. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Like, first we went there, and then we went to the next place, and they all tend to read somewhat the same, mm-hmm. um, with the exception of a couple. I mean, my co-author, Pat Schulte, I, I mean, he's one of the few travel writers that I I read often just because I, I don't get that sense of, you know, go, go, go. He's he's much more taking his time and his photography is beautiful and he, right. he makes he makes uh, observations about what he's seeing that helps to put me where he is. And that's the sort of travel writing that I, I like to read. I most definitely don't try and do that myself. I, I've found that when I try and travel log um, or write blogs about my travels that I end up experiencing less. Like I, I'm always thinking about, oh, this is a good photo opportunity or, or this is something I could write down and I'm, it takes me out of being there in the moment. So I don't do that much. Yeah, I've, I've transitioned in that way myself, uh, both from following the guidebook. Uh, I've, you know, I try to, it's useful to get a guidebook so you can have some general idea of what bus line you need to take and where you can find a, a hotel or a hostel to stay at if you need one. But I prefer not to go out and see the list of sites in general. Yeah. I prefer my favorite thing to do when I travel and I'm in another country is just simply walk out of the hotel and or hostel and go and try to get lost and just see what happens. <laughs> yeah. And when you get lost, yeah. to k- take a tuck a business card for your hostel or hotel in your pocket. And if you can't figure out a way to get back, then hail a taxi and give them the card, and you'll usually <laughs> wind up back there. But it's so exhausting to try to check the list of all of the sites and the and the, yeah. the tours. It's 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 tiring. And then, interestingly, also, I've made a similar decision even with things like photography. Is I mean, it's re- it's so in- it's so convenient now to have a, a beautiful cell phone camera in your pocket, you know, and take a few snapshots here and there. But I marvel now, and I used to do it, and I'm not one to tell other people how they should live their life or record their adventures. But I marvel sometimes when you're at a beautiful place, whether it's a beautiful natural view and vista or whether it's a famous monument or or edifice of some kind. And if you just stop and look, it's almost as though many of the tourists roll up and they just immediately are looking through the camera viewfinder or screen. And the entire experience of the destination is through the camera, making yeah. sure that we document that we were here instead of kind of <laughs> soaking it in. <laughs> yeah. And I feel a little bit uh, snotty, you know, or snobby, excuse me, not snotty, snobby. I feel a little bit like I've become a travel snob, and I don't mean to be. <laughs> but one, it's almost like I, I just don't understand how I used to do it or why I used to do it the way I did it. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's conditioning or, or maybe it's just the initial thrill when you're first traveling. You're just like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe we're doing this. I need to get proof so that everybody can see. Right. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I'll tell you a couple of stories that maybe, I don't know, confirm what both you and I agree on. Uh, we were in Costa Rica last year, and uh, we didn't know Costa Rica. I prefer not to read the guidebooks myself, and I just like to show up and see what happens. But, you know, we, we didn't want to roll into, into San Jose and then just, like, not know where we were going. Just, right. Yeah, you're going to be tired. It's a day-long trip. And so, anyway, we booked this place through Airbnb. It's gorgeous. Uh, Playa Flamingo. Uh, it's on the Nicoya Peninsula. It's, it's beautiful. You know, of course, it's gorgeous beaches. 
and we got a gorgeous place and you know it was it was fantastic and all but we really like to get to know a place through meeting the people who live there and we started talking with a couple who own this absolutely beautiful I don't want to call it a resort it's just it's kind of like a castle perched on a cliff you know you can kind of picture it looking out across the beach mm-hmm. and these guys you know they're Americans uh, husband and wife and we started talking to them and you know they started like slamming American politics and politicians and you know, talking about Obamacare and all this stuff and we were like you know gosh are you guys even here <laughs> you know we don't want to talk about that we're in Costa Rica let's hear about that right then we take off, you know, we had rented this car and we purposely stayed off what they would call their highways. They don't really have highways in Costa Rica, but we stayed on the dirt roads, the washboard stuff that takes you, you know, 20 miles per hour and, you know, five hours to go, uh, 50 miles sort of thing. Right. And uh, rolled into Samara or Samara, I'm not sure what it's, how it's pronounced, and didn't have a place to stay. We stop off at the organic grocery and we're just in line, you know, everybody's getting their orders, you know, they had made orders and stuff got shipped in and people are picking stuff up. And the guy next to me in line, I'm just like, hey, how you doing? You know, I just kind of uh, introduced myself and, you know, obviously I didn't do the tourist thing like, you know, where should we go? Where are the best sites? Where's the best beach? I was more like, hey, you know, we don't have any place to stay. Do you guys know any cool places to stay? He's like, gosh, you know, it's it's the holidays. Everything's booked up. But you guys can stay with us. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So, you know, we, we take this long road out of town, washboard, had to cross a couple rivers, which we later found out one was full of crocodiles. <laughs> and we, we roll up to this, you know, gated house and, you know, it's just, you know, they're Americans and they're expats and got their story, but got the total inside scoop on what it's like to, to move down to Costa Rica and keep a place down there. And we learned so much about the place, the lifestyle, just from these people that were out there doing it. They were right. doing this off-the-grid lifestyle. And it never would have happened if we had a place that was booked, you know? <laughs> it was just, and I can just, I can give you a hundred examples of how that sort of serendipity has led to adventures. And, um, and I just, that's the way we like to go now without much of a plan. There's a concept, I haven't figured out what to name it, and I've never really heard or read anyone else talk about it but it's just an observation i've made in life and again you maybe you can you and i maybe we can come up with a name for it but basically i think that if you're willing to accept some of the potentially poor outcomes you get to experience more of the potentially amazing outcomes and i see this applied at many times in life in travel if you're willing to do something where you're not exactly sure where you're going to stay but your standards are, and your standards are flexible. So, I'm not, you know, I'm willing to stay in kind of a if if worse comes to worse, and all the hotels are booked, and I'm staying at some scuzzy flea bag place, you know, with uncomfortable beds. It's okay, you know. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to be okay with it. We'll have an adventure. We'll we'll be able to tell something, you know, tell something. But the reality is, I might I might actually happen upon a beautiful, amazing place to stay that's at a rock bottom price because it was a last minute deal. <laughs> And, yeah. and but I see this applied throughout life. So, for example, I often think about this with regard to financial planning. One of the biggest challenges as a formal technical financial planner, especially in a discipline such as retirement planning, is if somebody, if a client is unwilling to accept a potential negative outcome, yeah. 
then you have to build a lot of safety into their financial plan. And so if they say, I'm never willing to have my income dip below this amount, well, then that's a constraint that gets put onto the financial plan that I've got to account for. And as such, I've got to adjust the portfolio to a more conservative, predictable uh, portfolio. Uh, but on the flip side, if a client were willing to accept a lower uh, amount or for a temporary period and they'd be willing to or willing or able to restrict their spending for a period of uh, a few years, then we can tilt the portfolio in a direction where there's potentially a much higher lifestyle throughout retirement and much higher uh, residue of the portfolio at death. But <laughs> the constraint that the client places of I'm not willing to go below this, just like if you're traveling and you say, I'm never willing to go below a three-star. Well, if I'm a tour guide, I'm going to book all those three-star, four-star hotels in advance. But yeah. if you're willing to go with a one-star, you know, on the on the the happenstance that we just can't find something else, you might have a five-star experience on a two-star price. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, you're delving into deep waters here. I mean, there's so much to talk about in with regard to what you just said. I think what I will attack it with is this idea of personal responsibility. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and I don't want to put words into your mouth or make criticisms about the financial planning industry. I have great respect for it. But I do think that, that one of the functions that a financial planner uh, has is to assuage or help lessen anxiety about money. So Absolutely. it's, you know, so your function is to decrease the anxiety <laughs> mm -hmm. through the tools that you have and the knowledge that you have. Well, you know, they could also do that themselves by learning more about the financial markets or doing a better job of managing their own finances. Um, that doesn't mean that your function is any less valuable. But the same thing happens with trading, the same thing happens with travel, is that people have perhaps a level of anxiety about these things that could probably be diminished by learning more or letting go of more, uh, of, of saying, okay, like just like you said, I will forgo the guarantee of three stars for the potential of five stars or one star, and being okay with the fact that, that either one of those outcomes could happen. I'm going to use my resources and my knowledge to try and and get the five stars as much as possible, but I'm going to take personal responsibility for it. I think a lot of people aren't willing to take personal responsibility, mm -hmm. even if even if they think they are. You know, they make choices to allay their fears rather than diminish risks because fear and risk are completely different things. Right, you're absolutely correct, and it certainly. Uh, you're absolutely correct. What's so challenging in how to negotiate these waters with regard to finance is there's so many facets of the conversation and there are so many, there's such a broad, diverse range of, of clients and potential clients. And it's difficult as a planner, having been in that perspective, that position where I am responsible for another person's outcomes, it's very difficult, I find, for at least me and my personal character and moral code. It's very difficult to be personally responsible for somebody else's potential negative outcomes. Totally. And I remember probably the most pointed example of this was uh, I read uh, the story 
uh, read the book called The Big Short, and part of that mm-hmm. profile, I forget the hedge fund trader's name. Uh, I'm not sure if you remember the guy in California. He was running a, a private fund, and uh, he has autism, and he was running this investment fund. It was a stock fund, and then early in, in the mid 2000s, when uh, mid to late to, yeah mid 2000s, when he when he sniffed out the problems in the subprime market, he made just these massive bets against uh, against his uh, against subprimes. Uh, and he wound up in profiting immensely for his fund. But what happened is it actually drove him out of the hedge fund business. He, cl- he shuttered his hedge fund after the fact because he got into a battle with his investors where he knew what he was doing and he was willing, he didn't know the timing as to when his trade would, would come to fruition. But he had so much of a margin of safety and he'd put everything into this trade and he had tilted the portfolio from being a relatively mainstream uh, value stock investment uh, perspective to being completely invested in buying insurance contracts. And he'd negotiated all these things, just a brilliant, uh, brilliant move. But, af- but his, his invest- investors were bailing on him uh, when it looked like when he was paying uh, you know, billions of dollars of interest to keep his trade alive uh, mm-hmm. as he waited for it to come out. And, his, and he had to, he actually had put his fund, fund into lockup and he refused to give any funds out of it. He refused to return any funds to his investors uh, while he was waiting for his trade to come out. His trade came out, but he got out. And, and my point in telling the story, it's a fascinating story, a highly recommended book if anyone is interested. But uh, my point is he couldn't deal with the emotion of having to be accountable to other people for losing other people. And that's oh, one yeah. of the things that I've experienced. I don't think I could ever manage an investment fund uh, for other people because I may be willing to take the risk with myself and I may be willing to live on beans and rice and live in a shack while I'm waiting for a trade to work out. Or if I screw something up big time, I may be willing to take that downside risk. But I can't. It, but it would destroy me to see a client have to downsize their home or have to adjust their lifestyle because of decisions that I made. And there's all these weird like psychological issues surrounding money and the money management business. There's ethical issues, there's psychological issues. Uh, it's just a maelstrom of, of, <laughs> of yeah. arguments and debates. Yeah. Yeah. You know, through the, the, I, I don't want to say publicity, but you know, this book that Pat and I wrote was pretty well received mm-hmm. and it's, you know, we get good reviews on it. A lot of things have come of it for us. A lot of offers have come, and one was to start a hedge fund. Mm-hmm. Um, this fund manager, actually, he's—I can't remember his name—but he's uh, published actually quite a few papers, and he's pretty well respected. But he, he wanted us to start a fund, and I mean, initially, I was kind of tempted, but then I was like, I can't handle that kind of pressure. I can't take responsibility for other people's money. I'm. The trades I make, man, I'll take flyers a lot, you know, and those sometimes pay off big. Sometimes, well, most of the time they don't, and that's just the nature of, of how I trade. Right. But I, I could never be responsible for somebody else's money, and you know, frequently, you know, when we're talking, when I'm talking with people about the book or just in casual conversation, you know, people want a pick. They, you know, right. what do you trade? What do you like? Right. Uh, what are you in? What do you not like? And I just, I, I don't even answer those questions anymore. I just, I, you know, it's not, I can't do that. It's not because I don't feel confident in my own strategies. It's more that I feel like 
if they really want to help themselves, they'll learn how to trade for themselves. And right. the, my our strategies are all about um, getting to know a core group of stocks, you know, products, services, companies that you use, that you watch, that you understand, and not looking for the hot stock. You know, don't don't make don't make small trades on things you don't know much about. Make big trades about things you're confident in. That's that's where you win. So, no, I think the, the personal responsibility thing is a huge one for me, and I, I think that it, it unlocks a lot of freedom for you in terms of your lifestyle or your entrepreneurial pursuits or your trading or whatever, if you can truly take the good with the bad, if you can take responsibility. And I think there's a lot of value in backing yourself into a corner, fighting your way out, you know, not having a fallback. You know, I was standing in, in that grocery line in Costa Rica. I didn't have any fallback. I, I didn't have a place to go. The, right. the entire town was booked, you know. So it was like I got to talk to this guy. I mean, I enjoy meeting new people, so mm -hmm. so that's a Benny. But but you know, I, there was no other choice. I had to ask this guy next to me where I could stay, and it worked out fabulously. Are you aware of anything uh, different in your background that has led you to be able to take? that kind of approach that you do because that's not I don't know I don't know what the what the percentages would be but that's not a mainstream approach uh, you are you're more comfortable with risk than many people was it growing up and you know on an off-the-grid uh, hippie back-to-the-land movement you know environment or maybe was there something about your background that you've identified that has led you to be more comfortable with risk I don't know I mean I guess I could go on and on and on and bore people to tears but yeah, I think maybe partially, yeah, what you're saying. I mean, we moved to Portland, Oregon, my family did, in the early 80s, and my, we didn't have any money. I mean, we got to be really poor, like as in our church was giving us boxes of food. Mm -hmm. So I know what it's like to be really poor. Well, maybe not really poor. There are much less fortunate people than, than we were. Really poor but within the U.S. American context. Yeah, yeah, I know what it's like to have holes in my jeans, you know, and have kids make fun of me because of it, and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe that's partially it. I think also I've, throughout my professional career, you know, I'm not a particularly super-duper outgoing person, but, you know, I started teaching in grad school, and my first day teaching in front of 250 kids, college students, <laughs> my fly was unzipped. <laughs> you know, you know, it was incredibly embarrassing. But I, I, you know, I, I, I made some sort of joke. I don't remember what I said, and you know, and they erupted with laughter, and I zipped it up and and kept going. And you know, I, as a not super outgoing person, I worked on television for years and years and years, and I've just seen over and over again how much your psychology is moldable. I mean, it, it, your emotions are completely your decision. You can, you can change your outlook on the flip of a, a switch, you know, and who you think you are, the shy person or the, the non-risk taker, that's completely in your head. I mean, just take a small risk. Talk to the person in the grocery line next to you. Um, you know, smile at a stranger. Um, just the little itty-bitty things, you'll build up to taking much bigger risks, you'll have a lot more confidence. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't say I'm the biggest risk taker in the world. I, as I've gotten older, I'm 41 now, 
I'd say that I've become more conservative over time, uh, financially, uh, you know, in terms of my business decisions. Um, but still, I'm astounded how people paint themselves into a little box, define themselves, and then they don't. They don't leave the prison of their own making. It's especially sad when they're unhappy about it. You know, they're unhappy with the life that they've chosen. Um, but it's you know, it's all in your head. Right. Yeah, I, I've, I'm interested in just personal development and have been for many years. And I've experienced two things, like two of those types of experiences. I'm, an, I'm personally, I'm an introvert and by nature. And yet I, I learned in high school that I would, that it didn't seem like the introverts were getting the results that other people did. So I learned to pretend to be an extrovert until I became comfortable with it. And to this day, I'm more comfortable alone. Uh, but I can, you know, I've learned to turn it on and it's powerful once you realize that you can change something about yourself. And then I think one of the most transformative experiences when I went into sales uh, as a financial advisor, then, you know, I, w I was, I had read people and said, you, if you learn to be an effective salesperson, you, that'll go with you for the rest of your life. And yep. <laughs> learning to learning to deal with rejection, learning to deal with the challenges, and learning to deal with people saying no to you, and learning to build tenacity and dogged persistence, which are required for success, especially success in financial services, was one of the most valuable transformative experiences I've ever been through. And it's, <laughs> it seems like all the good stuff is after the tough stuff. And the most important thing is that you are able to become a different person uh, through challenging processes. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm not even sure you become a different person, but it's just, you know, the way that you operate in your life, you see a lot less limits. I mean, going back to fear and risk, you know, as a salesperson, you know, uh, what's the bigger risk? Making the sales call or not making the sales call? Right. Make, you know, not making. The, the, yeah, that's the bigger risk by far. I mean, businesses are made or broken on sales and you know if you get so entwined with fear you're going to you know you're going to take risks that you shouldn't take um, yeah you know I've become more interested in in personal development in the last few years when we sat down and wrote this book Pat and I have been friends for a long time and we basically just wanted to do a project together and the question we asked ourselves was what can we do? How can we help people go out and have adventures? What's the excuse that they give, you know, for why they can't go do what they really want to do? And we saw it's money. You know, people think they don't have enough money. Well, we wrote a book about not only how to change your lifestyle to get you ready to go have that adventure, but to make money while you're having the adventure. But what I'm coming to realize, you know, after the fact, we wrote this book, what, two years ago, three years ago, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the the psychology of change is maybe even more important than this question of dollars. What What is it about people and the way that they think? Why are some people successful? Why are some people not successful? I'm not sure it comes down to whether you're outgoing or not, or what you say, introverted or mm -hmm. extroverted. Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't think it comes down to that. I, I, think, I think it's much more complex. Um, if, if you'll in, indulge some some theorizing. This is not founded on anybody else's you know, philosophy or anything. But I, I think that there are really three people that that live within us. Three personas. Um, the first is, I think, what I'll call like an effigy. It, it's like what we think we should be, and that can be influenced by 
culture, by our upbringing, by school, by parents. Of course, as we see on TV, there's this effigy, there's this standard that we hold ourselves to somewhere. There's this thing we think we should be. Then there's the person or persona that we think we are. We think that we're uh, introverted or extroverted, rich or poor, smart, dumb, uh, I don't know, choose your adjective. And then the third thing is who we really are. The third persona is who we really are. This is what we know to be true. And I think that people don't spend enough time getting to know who they really are, where their strengths really are, where their power comes from. And I think that the more time you can spend ruminating and deciding that you are an incredibly capable, powerful person, the more able you're going to be to take risks, to take responsibility, know that you can fight your way out of situations, and ultimately, the more successful you'll be. So don't spend so much time measuring up against other people, uh, bloggers who travel around the world, or you know, traders who say that they're making you know, <laughs> tens of thousands of dollars per day, or, or people who have washboard abs. You know, think more about what's inside. And, and I think that forms a foundation for success. It just does because you'll go off and you'll you'll have the confidence to know that you you can't your real self can't be bruised, can't be hurt by not finding that three star hotel tonight. You know what I mean? Right. It takes time to learn that. I feel I'm almost thirty, but I feel like I'm only just just a child. I, that's how I feel. <laughs> the older I get, the more the more uh, I feel of how little I know and how little I've experienced and how much I have yet to learn. And I'm thankful to be learning. But you know, I, I guess maybe it was naive. But I always thought that as I got older, I would feel more and more confident in what I knew. <laughs> I find as I get older, I feel less and less confident in what I know. Can I can I tell you a little story? Sure. About you. Um, so I. I initially found out about you and your podcast from your interview with Pat Schulte, my mm -hmm. co-author on the book. And of course I listened and I, I thought to myself, this is an earnest guy. This is a guy who is putting himself out there and doing something that I'm actually interested in doing, which is podcasting. And I listened to a few of the episodes and, and I'm actually fairly busy, so I don't listen to podcasts all the time and I, I got behind on your episodes. and. You know, you invite, it invited me to come on generously, and and I uh, had not scheduled anything. And I listened to a couple of your podcasts, and one I can't remember which episode it was, but but one in which you went to some sort of conference, and you um, stayed in your car. Mm -hmm. You lived out of your car, right? And that touched a chord with me because I think that people focus so much on this end game, this result, this trip around the world, they don't pay attention to what they're willing to suffer for, what they're willing to put themselves through in order to learn something really true and genuine. Because you can read, you can read things in books, you can listen to podcasts and hear enlightening things or trading secrets or whatever, but learning about yourself is putting yourself in uncomfortable situations. And you stayed in your car. That's radical personal finance right there. That's going further than somebody else normally would. And hearing your thoughts on what you learned from doing that, I thought was really cool. 
And I think, you know, that resonated with me when I first decided I wanted to go sailing. Man, I, my financial world was so, uh, I mean, I didn't know of one thing from another. This is even when I started trading. I thought when I bought a boat, I could get a loan for a hundred grand and, and pay off a thousand dollars a month and it would be paid off in a hundred months. <laughs> that's, that's how sad it was. Um, but I decided to minimize costs wherever I could because I wanted to dedicate myself to this dream of sailing away. And so I started riding my bike and I was doing morning weather at the time in San Francisco. So morning weatherman gets to work at 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. So to ride my bicycle, even when I had a car that was paid off, just to save that extra $10 in gas money and to go out and freeze my tail off to do it, that was me proving to myself my dedication to a philosophy. And that philosophy was low economic impact. It was uh, being green, being um, you know not burning fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. I was committing myself to values that were as much a part of the sailing dream as actually hoisting those sails and taking off. And so when I heard that you had decided to, we'll just use the word, suffer or sacrifice Mm -hmm. in the name of something that truly is radical personal finance, i.e. living in a car instead of paying for a hotel, Mm -hmm. that really struck a chord with me. I appreciate that. It's... It was hard for me to it's it's hard for me to to decide to, you know to talk about things like that on the show because the way that it seems that everybody in our society operates is very much about and I like your three I, I like your three people uh, uh, an a- illustration because what happens is most people we try to project the number two, the persona that we think we are, that we think that society wants us to be. Uh, maybe a combination of the effigy and the, and the persona. So in things like business or in things like uh, finance, especially, especially money, if, you don't, if you're not a guru, if you're not saying, look, I've got this all figured out, uh, you know, here, I've, I've made these millions, let me tell you how to do it, it's almost like, well, what, what do I have to offer? But I realized in time, you know, when I was a financial advisor, I was committed to being frugal. I've been committed to trying to build my wealth. And so for the first few, uh, for the first few years of being actually a practicing financial advisor, I was driving a, the, car, the car that I had bought in college, a 1993 Honda Accord, with, uh, and I, I sold it with over 300,000 miles on it. Nice. And the car was worth $2,000, and here I would be pulling up in people's driveways <laughs> with my $2,000 car to go in and tell them what to do with their money. And people would ask me about it, and I said, listen, you know, I know the financial situation of some other financial advisors, and I'm so sick and tired of the guy that walks in with an $800 a month BMW lease payment and he, can, he can't even afford that, doesn't have a dime, but is going to tell you how to be rich. Like, don't you see through this? Like, don't yeah. you see that my entire industry is, a, it seems like the majority of the people in my industry are lying to you on a daily basis and it's all about perception, you know, trying to, to, to affect your perception bias. Wouldn't you rather work with somebody who actually does have some money versus somebody who looks like they have some money. And wouldn't you like it if, if someone were authentic? And it took me, however, years to become comfortable. It's easy now for me to do that, to become comfortable with that. Um, but, uh, but, but it was, it was, it was, it, it, it took a lot for me to be 
to the point where I wasn't ashamed. You know, I wasn't ashamed to park my car around the, the around the side. And I feel as though that's one of the beautiful things about the internet is that it allows us, or just about communications, it allows us to kind of pull some of those uh, those walls down. And what I realize that I appreciate is when people are transparent and authentic. Because I spent a lot of time listening to people who were so-called gurus, and <laughs> I thought, and I always felt there was something wrong with me because I couldn't do what they did. You know, my to-do <laughs> list is never done. My email inbox, you know, gets to zero messages about once every two months. I'm not perfect. <laughs> you know, I've done made a lot of mistakes. Even starting this business, I, I, you know, I was a dumb dumb, and I thought I needed to put all my money in retirement accounts, and then when I wanted to start a business and I bought an expensive house, then I, you know, I didn't have as much money as I needed available because I have it all in home equity and retirement accounts, which doesn't help me today. <laughs> and so I realized that if we can just deal with not having to stroke our ego, and for me that was, uh, maybe for some people they can, you know, they can summon up the, the personal will of, of, Maybe some people can just do it on their own, but for me, it was a, a, a real spiritual transformation in my life where I became a little bit more conscious of who I was um, on a spiritual level and realized that I didn't need to try to tell, I didn't need to try to portray anything. All I needed to do was simply be me, and that's okay. It sounds like a self-help you know, uh, show here, but but the, the th there's so many people that are trapped in ways of, of saying, um, it, trapped in ways of, of of living, and I think when you get to the point where you say, "No matter what I'm going to do," it's like like with 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 radical personal finance. Um, I can't tell someone how necessarily to be a millionaire, except for the academic theory. I'm not a millionaire yet, but I can tell. I can teach how to apply. Um, I can teach how to apply financial planning concepts. Uh, I can't. I can't teach trading like you do. I'm not a, an effective trader. I don't have any knowledge, so I purposefully avoid talking about that, uh, except from the academic side, and send people off to learn their own. But what I can do is I can show a path to entrepreneurship because I came to the conclusion that you know if I need to rent out my house and I'm not planning on it, but if I need to cash out my IRA, I would rather do that and not waste a decade of my life hoping that someday I can you know fix this need. I'm tired of waiting, and I feel like you know so much of my life I was uh, I lived it under the impression that. Of, under that effigy, you know, what we think we should be, the path that I think it should, should take. And I realized that, you know what, that's simply not the case. There's only one person that, uh, that I'm responsible to, and that's God. And uh, beyond that, like, I don't have to keep other people happy by following society's plan. And I know this is super, it is super self-introspective <laughs> self or whatever, but it's, it's a reality that I think I just... Maybe it's a maybe it's a transforming into an adult, and maybe I wasn't before. But I, you realize I had a conversation with my wife, and with this I'll stop talking. But uh, <laughs> and I've had conversations with some of my friends that society has laid out this this kind of this script for you. And oh, essentially, yeah. the script is: go to high school, make sure you graduate from high school so that you can go to college. Go to college, make sure you graduate from college. You need to be in order to be successful. You need to have a job. You need to uh, you know you need to buy a house. You need to get married. You need to get a dog, and you need to get a kid. <laughs> 
<laughs> and uh, I've done all those things, not necessarily because society said so, but I've, I've done all those things. And I always had operating in the back because I was always re the responsible one. So I always had that script running in the back of my head that I need to be responsible. I, you know, People like me don't drop out of college. People like me don't get bad grades. People like me don't do this stuff. And you finally wake up and you say, you know what? I like I like the house I live in. I love my wife. I'm thrilled with my kids. I love, you know, my dogs, but the reality is that stuff at this point I could give it all up and I could walk away without a college degree. I forget the high school diploma, get rid of the house, get rid of the car, get rid of the job, get rid of the, the, the you know those things don't even matter to me. There's something different and maybe it's Maybe it's just realizing that there's more than just checking the boxes. And I yeah. see that real passion with my generation. And you know, people write about it. They write about the millennials. They, they talk about it. But it really is, uh, I'm not sure where I'm going, so I'll shut up. But I appreciate the kind <laughs> comments. It's been a growth process for me. <laughs> well, it's, it, I think it comes to, for a word, um, for me, uh, the word is earnestness. You know, it's a, it's a, um, it's an honest, genuine pursuit, and I, I think it's a lifelong process. Mm -hmm. I think your thirties are a, a really important time where you do become centered. You do give up trying to impress. Well, not everybody. But some people give up trying to impress others quite as much, and you get to know yourself um, a little bit more. So, yeah, I think that's that's sort of one of the benefits of of aging. I mean, you get the aches and the pains, <laughs> those only get worse, <laughs> but you do get to know yourself quite a bit more. And I think that's, that's what you're describing. And the more you do that introspection, the more you come to realize that there isn't a dollar figure, there isn't a particular job title, there isn't a particular situation even, there isn't a particular country to visit that will lead to the type of fulfillment that you're talking about. It's definitely an inner journey. Right. Um, and to bring it back to something else you said about authenticity and, and being honest, I'll tell you as a business person, um, I work with very large companies and I work with entrepreneurs. Um, I will tell you that authenticity and honesty are in such low supply, often that when you come across people who are authentic, who are honest, and you know what they're saying to be not just a snow job, mm -hmm. you hang on to those people. You do business with them. You go back to them. You pay more for their services than you would from somebody else. You uh, have loyalty to those people. Um, being an honest person about whether your company is actually thriving or whether it's uh, you know, in turmoil, being honest with other business partners about your fears, um, I think that that will put you ahead in the long run. And if people that you're working with disrespect you because of that honesty, those aren't the types of people that you want to do business with. The business people that I've had experience with who are extremely successful have a talent for seeing the world as it really is. I don't know whether that's seeing themselves as they really are, but seeing the world as it really is, identifying opportunities that really are there, that aren't just hyped up by some blog or some technical article or something like that. They see opportunities that are really there. Having that ability to cut through the 
well, you don't have to use your bleeper, but the BS. Mm-hmm. Having the ability to cut through that BS is what sets the top CEOs from the guys who end up pushing paper in some mid-levels. So I think the, the more that we can be honest with ourselves, and the more that we can be honest with our business partners, and you know, um, I guess this online community that continues to develop these podcast communities, <laughs> you, know, you, you can see the people who are thriving in these uh, emerging arenas, and a lot of them have um, this ability to be honest, to be uh, forthright. Uh, so I think that's really important. It comes back to responsibility, it comes back to being honest, it comes back to being transparent. So, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of power in that, and I don't know if it's too much self-help woo-woo for one, <laughs> for one <laughs> podcast or what, but that's that's definitely how I operate. When I'm doing business, I, I definitely uh, I hang on to those people who I feel are honest. I appreciate, I appreciate the encouragement. It, 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 it is encouraging. I'd like to explore, uh, and yeah, Hopefully the, hopefully it's not too much self-help stuff. But that you know that's, that's the stuff that matters. It really does. If you it can, does. It, it, I mean, if you really, really do want to change your situation, if you really, really do want to change your life, this is the stuff that matters, guys. It's not that trade, that single trade, or that trip to Bali. That's not it. You're going to be the same person when you get there. I guarantee it. <laughs> and even with even with business, even with trading, one of the things I did observe, which finally gave me the the courage to say, forget it, I can figure it out as I go, is I recognize that I have a tendency to judge. I personally probably think that some things are not recoverable, but when you actually study the the research, you know, the, I can't remember the statistics on the top of my head, but a majority of millionaires have been bankrupt or close to bankrupt on more than one occasion. And you realize that it's not, it's, it's a mental construct it's a mental fabrication uh, and the, the the idea and I'm a very much a planner that's why I'm a financial planner and so I think well I have to have it all figured out and I realize I don't I can enjoy the journey and I'll tell you I love it you know I, I am enjoying the journey that I'm even though I'm working like a crazy man uh, and I figured out and I do these you know wacky ways of <laughs> of taking trips and and like I did and and being able to save the money, uh, I could have spent. You know, I had savings. I could have spent the money, but it was part of test on 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 that on the hotel rooms. But I just thought, what a waste of money, first of all. And it was part of it's part of me testing it. You know, am I willing? You can you can indeed. Uh, you don't have to have it all. I could indeed be happy uh, and and be in dire straits. So, uh, well, I, I think it comes down to. Uh, I don't want to get too deep or philosophical because I'm. Go not ahead. We've already we are we've already gone to this point, so feel free. Go ahead. <laughs> I think there's a part of us that are somewhat masochistic. I think that that we do like to suffer for the things that we love or the things that we value. I think we're willing to suffer for the things, the people, the pursuits that we adore, and I think part of that is is. Uh, testing ourselves, you know, seeing how far we can go. Um, I ran a marathon this fall. I'm not a naturally gifted runner. I'm top heavy and, uh, and I'm just, I'm a big person and it's, I'm not a good runner, but I wanted to see if I could do it. I wanted to try something that I thought was a good chance I could fail at because I want to see how far I could go. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's that whole, Whose quote is it? T.S. Eliot. Uh, you don't know 
only those who try to go too far know how far they can go or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we have to know what we're willing to suffer for. I'm willing to suffer for things that teach me about myself. And I don't know if that's masochism, but I feel like I learn new things about myself and I'm able to push even further. And um, that's what I'd like to tell people who have the passion to travel but don't feel like they can. To take that first step, you know, book an uncomfortable hotel room or sleep in your car. You don't have to go travel around the world. Go sleep in your car. Test those assumptions about whether or not you really will be so embarrassed because you're sleeping in your car and everybody else is in a four-star hotel. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, test yourself. Test your assumptions. Figure out what you're willing to suffer for. Right, absolutely. And uh, the reason is, you know, even just when you curtail your spending, I always, I always think about uh, how far a dollar can go in other parts of the world. And I say, I'd rather not spend the 20 here because that 20 bucks uh, on this expenditure at home, you know, $30 thoughtlessly spent on a meal out because I was too lazy to plan ahead to have uh, food available at home. That $30 can take me an extra day on the road, and I'd rather be an extra day on the road than just have this trip down to TGI Fridays because we were too lazy to, to plan ahead. Uh, it's so funny. Uh, we were at the, my wife and I were at the grocery store the other day, Whole Foods. Do you guys have Whole Foods out there? Yes. Yeah, you know. I'm in like I'm in like hippie crunchy, um, <laughs> like, no, like what's the what's the term for it? Like affluent people who shop at right now, right within a mile of my house, I've got Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, and two local gourmet markets that are Yuppieville. All, all, exactly. I'm in Yuppieville where I live. <laughs> yeah, we're we're in uh, Food Nation here in Portland, Oregon. Uh, but we're at, my wife and I are at Whole Foods, and we're in we want to get some fish and. and um, we roll up to the counter, and halibut is like, I love halibut. Mm -hmm. I love fish in general, but halibut's 30 bucks a pound. I'm like, holy smokes, 30 <laughs> bucks a pound is going to cost us, you know, 50 bucks to get some, to get a good dinner. You know, so, you know, you forgo that expensive fish, but you're really willing to go out to the sushi restaurant and drop 70. You know what I mean? Right. It's like you could go have a fabulous fabulous halibut steak dinner for less money than you're going to spend at a restaurant. Right. So, yeah, I, I catch myself in those quandaries, uh, you know, all the time. But, but to draw back into, you know, uh, living on the margin and traveling and spending less and financial independence, uh, people are, I think, frequently amazed at how far a dollar will go outside of the U.S. It's shopping at Whole Foods, Whole Paycheck, I mean... It's silly. And, you know, it's a $100 bag of groceries, and, you know, you could live for a week or more eating out all the time mm -hmm. in Mexico or, or Indonesia or, you know. It's just, it's incredible how much we waste just because of inattention. Absolutely is. I'd like to uh, explore three topics, and we can hit these either quick hits or we can we can dive into them. We're not necessarily on a time limit, but there are three things that have mentioned that are more connected to uh, personal finance, and uh -huh. we're gonna, I'm going to start with the concept of distributed retirement and the advantages and disadvantages of that. I want to talk a little little bit about timing the market, uh, and then finish up with 
uh, your ideas and thoughts, and I know you've written the book, which uh, which I highly recommend, Live on the Margin, about it, but essentially how to learn trading uh, in today's context. Let's start with distributed retirement. This is, or at least the idea of, you know, don't wait until you're rich and can retire at 65, but be willing when you're 28 or 38 or whatever to take a year or three months, as the case may be, and and go, even though you don't have enough money for the rest of your life to be financially independent. One of the big fears that people have is that if they do that, they'll be set back. So they'll be set back in their career. They'll they'll go they'll go backwards. Has your experience with your I guess your life so far with, you know, doing this, going, taking a trip, doing that. Would you say it's been a net positive on your overall career and financial prospects, neutral or negative? Negative. Expand. expand. (laughs) How do you mean? Well, I mean, I made quite a bit of money doing television. Um, If I dedicated myself to full-time trading, I would make quite a bit more money. Mm -hmm. Um, When... I don't think we've talked about it, but my company, I'm, I, I do uh, industrial voiceover. So, okay. yeah, it's not glamorous, but it's, you know, it, it pays the bills. Um, you know, it's not necessarily convenient for my clients for me to disappear for two or three months. Um, so, I lose income from taking trips. Um, so, strictly from a financial perspective, I would have more in the bank if I spent more time um, just generating cash. Um, so that's that's not even disputable. If I wanted to go back to television, I'd probably have to start off in a smaller market than I left. I left the fifth largest market and probably, I don't know, I'd probably be in South Bend, Indiana or, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> Charlotte or something like that. Um, so there's no doubt that that uh, I would be further, quote unquote, ahead if I dedicated all my time to making money. But that's those are not my priorities. Um, you know, I, I'm not putting all my eggs in one basket for something that may or may not happen, which is retirement at, at 65 or 58 and a half or whatever you want. Do you second guess yourself sometimes? Uh, to be perfectly honest, yes. Um, it's hard not to. You're even if you are traveling, you're still inundated with imagery and stories from other people who are either you know financially ahead of you or on par with you. Or it's hard not to um, to be drawn towards that that effigy we were talking about. This ideal of who you think you could be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that I am not consumed with it. I the type of traveling lifestyle that we we lead is traveling part of the year, and so I'm never all the way off the grid. Do you know what I mean? So I, I never feel completely disconnected. And also, uh, you know, financially, we're in, in very good shape. Part of that has to do with the fact that we don't have children. Children are very expensive. Mm-hmm. Let's switch to timing the market. You, There's this major debate in finance circles around timing the market and essentially people argue you can you can't the academic research much of what's done will say well you can't uh, predict in advance who's going to be able to time the market so it's academically unsound and yet there are many people who say you're a fool if you think uh, you can't time the market look I have look at these certain things have you developed a way to integrate uh, and I'm maybe those are straw men maybe they're 
real, but have you developed a, a philosophy that integrates the realities on either side of that issue? Hmm. Well, first of all, let me preface this by saying that, that trying to time the market as a casual investor or somebody who works full-time at something else uh, is pure folly. If, you're, if you don't have the time to pay attention, uh, you know, you're going to be at the emotional whims of the media. And something that you read, I, I pulled up CNN this morning, and one of the stories was like, the, the, world, the world's economy is in worse condition than we thought, you know? you're going to try and make decisions based on limited information. If you're a much more involved investor, somebody who's selective about the securities that they buy, I think that there's, well, the investments that you make, not just securities, um, I think that you absolutely can time the market. Um, I brought up the example of the house that we sold in, in Colorado before the subprime crisis hit. Um, you know, I could see that it was already starting to happen in some of the, the fastest growing markets. In Florida, it had already become a disaster by, let's say, late 2007. Um, so by mid-2008, before anybody really understood what credit default swaps were, I could see that the economic engine that have been producing most of the income for households, which was the appreciation of their primary residence, was about to fall flat on its face. I didn't need to know all the mechanics ahead of time. I could see that it was happening. Mm -hmm. It was happening in some markets first. There was no doubt in my mind I needed a rapid exit. Did I time the market perfectly? No, I didn't. Um, I didn't get back in in 2009 until after I had sold my company. and. I was late in the recovery. I missed out on some of that. But I did get in when the news was still really bad. Um, I think a lot of this has to do with just paying attention to, to what's happening. Um, a lot of my greatest investments have come from people that I've met in industries I haven't, hadn't previously thought about or understood but had told me things about what they were doing in their businesses that led me to believe that I could make a move. This is not insider information at all. This is just them talking about what's going on in their business. Mm -hmm. um, I sat next to a guy on a, on a plane to San Diego. I was going down to visit the boat, and uh, he worked for a, a very well-known uh, cloud computing software security company. Hey, what are you doing? What are you going down here for? He says, oh, we're having a, an all-hands uh, uh, meeting uh, with the lead of our sales team. Oh, really? What's going on? He says, oh, it's just been a brutal quarter. Oh, really? Okay. What's going on? Ah, just, you know, companies aren't investing the way they should. There's new players uh, on the field. Uh, competition's steep. So I went back and I looked at this company and I actually looked at their technical uh, their fundamental numbers. Oh, okay. There hasn't been much movement here. Hmm. Earnings two weeks away. What's going on? News looks pretty good. Earnings came out. It was horrendous. It was terrible. I had uh, bought puts way out of the money. I don't know if we talk much about options trading, but I had basically shorted this this uh, this company this issue, mm -hmm. and it was my one of my best trades of the year. Right. And it just happened to be 
something that I wasn't necessarily watching. It's not like I had some sort of insider trading information. Um, it's just asking somebody about how their business was doing, asking why. Um, asking why is a huge, huge uh, tool for figuring out whether or not you can time something. Um, so when, when there isn't enough information, don't make a trade, don't make a move. Uh, but when there is information that piques your interest, ask why. Ask if it's reasonable. Ask if you can lead the pack, get ahead of the game. Don't invest in the hot thing. Invest in the thing that's not so hot. Or when it's super hot and you think there might be a reason why it's going to crash, really delve into that. Figure out if there's some, some evidence for, for what you think may be happening. So I don't know if that really answers your timing the market question. Can you always time the market? No. But you can certainly time it here and there. Um, I could bring up another example from real estate. Um, in the book, we actually talked about how you probably shouldn't invest in real estate. The returns aren't high enough. You know, we wrote this in 2011, 2012. Uh, I didn't see much movement in prices, but by the time we were publishing, uh, we were living in Del Mar, California, and I was looking around, and gosh, interest rates sure are low, and there's nothing on the market. There's nothing to buy down here. There's, you know, there's the inventory is really, really low. Started looking around San Diego in general. Not much inventory. Interest rates super low. Why isn't there much movement? And I thought, well, it's because banks haven't eased their guidelines yet. You can't get a mortgage without your 20% down. Um, lending standards have, have, for good reason, gotten very, very tight. So when I looked at what's, what part of the real estate market might grow fastest, so I had become certain that we were going to see a recovery in housing. Um, I looked at what sectors might be fastest to recover and appreciate the most. I initially thought, well, we'll go low end. We'll buy something on the lower end of the market, something cheap. Well, lending standards aren't easing that much. I think they're going to stay pretty tight for a while. So I thought, what are the fastest appreciating markets? Portland, Oregon was already appreciating fastest on the West Coast, aside from San Francisco, which I didn't want to get into. Um, let's look for something that's not at the low end of the market in Portland. There's a lot of press, a lot of buzz about Portland. Uh, this is two years ago. Bought something at the high end of a middle-class neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Found a good opportunity um, where you know the people who move to this neighborhood don't necessarily have super tight finances. They can they can move into a six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollar house without mm -hmm. you know busting the bank. So we bought, you know, an ugly duckling and have seen, you know, if you look at just the return on our down, if we cashed out today, very conservative numbers, uh, an annualized return of about 45%, 50%. So is that time in the market? <laughs> I think it is. Right. Uh, will I call this a home and stay here forever? Probably not. Um, and I don't want to prognosticate, but... Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> I won't be in. I won't be in real estate forever. I'll tell you that. Right. I. I could. We could do a whole. Show. I could do hour and two hour. You know, shows on this, and maybe it's on my list of things. Maybe I'll explore more. But for me, 
one of the there were some major breakthroughs for me on the timing the market question when I understood that there were multiple versions of the efficient market hypothesis. Oh, and totally. When I understood when somebody finally taught me that the efficient market hypothesis wasn't simply that all markets are always efficient all the time, but that there was the strong form, the weak form, and the semi-strong form. And I realized that, then it made all the sense in the world and helped me to understand that, yes, most markets are going to be fairly efficient. There's a reason why... Uh, you know, if you go down a street, most of the gasoline prices on most of the gas stations on the street are about in the same. So you can't expect a lot of variation uh, on if there were four gas stations within a mile, you can't expect a ton of variation. That's an efficiently priced market. There are exceptions, but but that doesn't mean that there aren't macro trends that anybody can smell, and that doesn't mean that the herd, when people are simply following the herd, that you can't that you can't just simply find it. Uh, that, excuse me, that you can't smell those things out. And I realized that all of us actually make bets and take trade positions based upon our outlooks on on a market. And mm-hmm. some ones that I've used come from from personal finance side, not from the trading side, but from the personal finance side, of doing something like selecting a career or choosing to make a choice to go into college. If we make a choice to go to college or not go to college or to send our children to college and pay the bill or to not, we're doing that based upon a bet that the market is is going to pay off for the exchange for, for, for that exchange. Now you see <laughs> now you see that changing. And you see people that made foolish bets and they're $300,000 in debt for a humanities degree that's not a marketable commodity and you say, "Huh, that did that trade didn't work out very well." <laughs> Or you can look. Is that at, surprising to you? By the way, right? <laughs> or you look at it with regard to the careers that we choose. The the reason that people choose careers often has to do with their personal proclivity in one direction or another, but also based upon this is an industry that is growing. There are more people choosing to go into computer science now than there are choosing to go into. My mind fails me for a, a, a suitable metaphor, but into industries that are in decline. And so we're always looking at these things on a macro basis. And then if you actually look at real life, you can drive through a neighborhood and you can get an idea. Is this a neighborhood that's in decline or in advance? <laughs> like, and it's, so, it's, it's not even like you have to like really ruminate. Right. I mean, it's drive so through. <laughs> and you can you can tell what's happening with an industry. You can get an indication of what's going on with a company if you actually sit down and read their annual reports and if you actually sit down and follow the news of a company, you can tell uh, is this company uh, in general doing well. But markets have become so abstract to <laughs> to most of us. And because it's not something that we follow, uh, I have no idea what the Dow Jones Industrial Average is going to do on any random day. I don't. But I do know what's happening in my industry, and I take bets on the things that are close to me. So it's not, I don't find it easy to explain. But a lot of the academic research that you look at, you look at it and say, man, there's holes in this a mile wide. And yes, I get that when you're comparing uh, mutual fund managers of a public open-ended mutual fund uh, you know, based upon these criteria, yeah, I understand that. 
But that doesn't necessarily mean that I, as an individual, can't identify a trend. After all, there's a reason why I started this podcast at the time that I did. I said I can't sit by for another two years to get all of my ducks in a row to be sitting fat and happy on $150,000 in my checking account to cash flow me for four years. Like this is the this is the time, and I need to be in front of this trend, and I need to build the skills that I need so that as this grows and grows and grows, that my offering is there, able to compete in the open market. Like we can't, you can time things if you know the industry. You can get the idea is, uh, you know, are the, is Detroit growing or, or falling? You, anyone who lives <laughs> in Detroit is, should have been able to smell that one a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think what we didn't anticipate, and I certainly didn't, were the bankruptcies. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, in American automotive, I never thought that they would let GM, you know, fail. You know what I mean? It's like, What's going on here? So, I think in certain sectors you can you can still underestimate the downside. But then again, I've never been you know invested in auto. I, I think stick to what you know is is a good good way to go. But also don't limit yourself to what you know. Get to know other things. Right. You know. But but remember what you know, and remember that there's so much hype out there. There's so you know, so and so. You know, uh, there's upgrade or downgrade. It's now a B minus. It was a C plus. You know, our price target is 45 instead of 50. You know, that's all just BS. You know, that's just a guy. You know, saying, okay, well, we we have to say something here. What are we going to say? Okay, let's say. And then you see the market react. And if you know that company, you know what's going on with them. You can look at that with you know, some distance go, oh my goodness, that's such BS. You see an upgrade, you see a big spike for two or three days, and you go, is that really warranted? You can short it, man. You can make some, no. I mean, you, you can just trust yourself. I've, I've seen it happen over and over again. You can fade things. You know, you see, you see a security go down, you know, a couple percent, a couple, three percent, and you're like, why? What? Was there just some bulk, sell bulk selling today? What's the deal? You can buy these little dips and, and, you know, don't necessarily have to rely on making all your income off one trade, but you can make some. Uh, so, yeah, get to, know, get to know small pieces of the market and, uh, and leave the rest of the fools because most of them are fools. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any formal way of tracking your returns in an academically rigorous way or do you have a gut gut instinct on years that you've uh, that you've done well years that you haven't done well do you have any personal data that you're willing to share hmm yes I do track everything no I'm not willing to share everything I would say that I outperform I, how, how you want to slice and dice my portfolio is you know you know changes those numbers right, right now I I'm invested in real estate and so those numbers are just estimates, you know, based on a return if I liquidate, you know, next month. Uh, but that to me, because I don't just see the home as, or the house as a home, I see it as an investment, those matter to my overall portfolio. If you look at my total portfolio, I'm something on the order of, I'll just say 18 to 25% annually. Um, I have traded options, you know, very lightly in the last year uh, because I've basically been invested. I've let the market do 
everything for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been long. So if you look at the return on my options plays, it's meager, it's small, it's you know probably eight percent, ten percent last year. But in 2013, I was it was definitely double digits, maybe close to 20 percent. So it really depends how you slice and dice it, but. Uh, I'm happy enough with my returns that I just don't stick everything into an index fund and, and let it ride. Right. Um, although I recognize that, you know, I may be putting more work into this than needs to be. <laughs> right. Right. You know, I, I, you know, especially as the market's been in the last three plus years, you know, I could have been in any fund and done probably just about as well with a hands-off approach, but. I like the control. I like the responsibility. I like the ability to 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 make moves, uh, you know, on a whim. So, I think it's interesting in the field of advice. The people that <laughs> I always say, "Here's the general advice," and if you're the kind of person who ignores the general advice, you're the kind of person who probably should ignore the general advice. <laughs> <laughs> so, should most people probably go and put their money in an index fund and go and focus on something that's different, like making a lot of money in their career or going and doing something to do? Yes. But if you're the kind of person that ignores that advice, you're probably the kind of person that's willing to do what's necessary to actually, <laughs> you know, to do something different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, and, and as we were getting ready for our first sailing trip, we had never met with a financial advisor before, and we had a really good idea of where our assets were, and I think it gave you an idea of what, we're, what our net worth was. Um, but we still visited with uh, a, a financial advisor, uh, Brad Elman, out of the Bay Area. He's a, he's a great guy. And we just put everything down on paper, and he gave us an idea of where we stood compared to other people at uh, our stage of life. And it gave us some confidence. Um, so I don't think that just your average Joe should be out there managing their own money. I think, uh, you know. If they're interested, they should certainly learn how to trade. I think most people probably should learn how to trade. Uh, but is it essential if you're focusing on other things? No. If you want to go travel, you've got and you're not, you know, insanely wealthy. Can you make enough money to support your travel habit? Uh, depending on your initial trading nut, I think so. You know. <laughs> so uh, again, I would direct them towards uh, any of the introductory uh, trading books. Uh, like options, uh, option volatility and pricing. Um, that's by Nathan Berg. Um, or, you know, pick up our book. Our book is definitely introductory material uh, if you're interested in trading options or, or just trading on the road. Um, another book that I would recommend, and this is somewhat newer ideas, is something by uh, Nassim Taleb. Are you familiar with him? I am, yeah. Nicholas Taleb, Anti Fragile. Um, if you want to look at how nonlinearity um, can be extremely uh, uh, profitable, um, I would pick that book up. Again, that's anti-fragile or Google uh, Nassim Taleb uh, on the internet, and you're going to find some really interesting stuff, new ways to look at, at old ideas, and uh, I found it very enlightening. Um, but yeah, I think uh, you know you can you can manage your own money and probably outperform most of the active funds, um, but it does take time and education and experience, and you can expect to lose along the way. So right. <laughs> there's a huge, ca- huge caveat there is, you know, if, you've, if you're really risk averse, man, just, just to get in a fund. <laughs> right, right. 
Any other resources in addition to those four, uh, or excuse me, those three that you mentioned, option volatility and pricing, uh, you're, in, you're in Patrick's book, Live on the Margin, and then Anti-Fragile. Any other resources that would be useful to help somebody start to learn about trading? I would say, um, you know, I can't remember who wrote it, but um, there's a book called The Options Playbook, and I feel like it's a really good, simple playbook that shows you a bunch of strategies because, you know, there's buying and selling, writing um, calls, puts, covered options, naked options, but there's there's endless variations of iron <laughs> this and condor that, and um, there's a lot of different ways to play with options. Um, I think options are a great way to to make your money go further. They're certainly much more risky, um, but as soon as you understand what they are, uh, you'll see that you're probably already uh, using options in other parts of your life. Like a, a mortgage on your home is in a way an option. Uh, you don't actually own the house that you have a mortgage on, uh, the bank does, and you have the option, really. And uh, you pay them your interest rate for the option on your house. So uh, I would, Definitely take a look at options if, if you're interested in, in upping your exposure to risk. Um, I think one of the, the truest things in life is, you know, the higher the risk, the higher the reward. Um, so, yeah, you can play it safe, but if, if you are hungrier for, for more in your life, I'd say take the risks. You'll be fine no matter what. Do you have any, last question, do you have any, I guess, do you have a sniff test that you've developed over the years? Uh, anything that, because especially when you start into the option world, man, is there a lot of junk out there. Um, do you have any, like a smell test that you developed that would help somebody to make wise choices and, av and avoid being swindled out of their money? Uh, specifically uh, with regard to trading education uh, is what I'm asking about. You know, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't, I, I don't have enough familiarity with other um, educators. I think that options look very complicated on the surface and there's a million different ways. I think there's even an options trading for dummies book out there. Um, you can get mechanics down by, um, by reading any of these introductory books. Um, I don't know who to trust in terms of, of, um, of trading advice. I, I generally don't give trading advice myself. Um, so I don't know what to look out for. Okay. But I would say anybody who promises huge returns, um, if you follow this simple strategy, or anybody who wants a lot of money up front for some sort of hand-holding, <laughs> right, right. Um, I, I would be wary of that. Um, so I don't know. Does that answer your question? <laughs> no, well, it's, it's good enough. It's just an interesting – I know it's a it's – a, challenging jungle for people to navigate and it's always good to have a guide uh, when you're when you're going someplace unfamiliar for the first time so yeah looking it, for those resources for people you know um, Pat and I have you know we've had lots of requests to further develop live on the margin into uh, a course or a forum or um, or a podcast or something like that and I'm not sure exactly what form that will take um, Pat uh, Schulte and People should definitely Google Pat Schulte or bumfuzzle.com uh, to hear more about uh, his story. Um, Pat is really a master trader, and I think he has talked about actually mentoring some people. You'd want to contact him about that. Um, but 
you know, I, I don't think that you want to go out and look for somebody who's going to do everything for you. I think you want to learn how to do it for yourself. So again, anybody who's like pointing you towards a particular penny stock or something like that, just run. <laughs> but but somebody who's actually going to explain, right. you know, why should you buy out of the money in this particular case? Out of the money being an options trading term, you know. That's what you want. You want somebody who can answer your questions, not somebody who's going to point you in a particular direction. Right. Well, I'll look forward to seeing what you guys uh, come up with. Nick, I, I thank you so much for taking your time to come on. I've really enjoyed this, and I think this will be a, a useful a useful resource for people with a little bit of inspiration, a little bit of education to go out and <laughs> have fun with their own adventures. Yeah, thanks so much, man. I really appreciate your time, and I appreciate what you're doing, and uh, keep at it, man. I think you're changing people's lives, and I think that's just about all we can hope for as people. I appreciate that. Pretty cool to think of all the things that you can accomplish, huh? I, I just get so inspired talking with guys like Nick, uh, talking like guys with guys like Patrick when I inter, inter, interviewed him, Pat, uh, his co-author. I just, I love having my own, uh, I guess, vision expanded. Uh, super fun just to hear of the things that are possible. I hope that was useful to you. If you'd like more, I'll put links to Nick's blog. He doesn't really write much online. Uh, most of his thoughts, I, I know he put. He wrote a book called uh, Get Her On Board, which is all about how to get your spouse uh, to go sailing with you. I meant in the interview to ask him more about that, and I completely forgot. But he also wrote the book Live On The Margin, and it's quite good. You can pick up the Kindle version. I'll, make, I'll post a link in the show notes. Uh, it's very good. It's really fun. And if you want to get just a hardcore slap in the face about spending Spending too much money, about why you're spending too much money, and why you're allowing yourself to live a crazy lifestyle, and how you can quickly free yourself a little bit, then check it out. Uh, one of the things that I most enjoyed from Live on the Margin was actually Nick and Pat's discussion of risk. They talk a lot about that, and risk is one of those things that we all have to think about, and we all have to look at our own levels of what we're comfortable with. But coming from two traders, they apply essentially a trading mentality to the idea of risk, especially with other things, other aspects of life and life risk. And it's well worth reading for that alone. Uh, I'm not sure that you're going to pick it. Well, I am sure that you're not going to pick it up and be able to go out and make massive percentages, rates of return uh, on your own trading plan from it. But I know they worked hard to get together and... Uh, write a good intro to trading. So um, hopefully it could be useful to some of you, at least to wet, wet your toes in the water. Uh, but like I said in the beginning, it's a very interesting mashup of stock trading and life advice. So check it out. I'll put a link in the notes. That's it for today. I thank you so much for listening. I will be back with you tomorrow. Uh, might be back with you in, with an interview or if I can, if I can get everything done. I'll be back with you to tell you about the future of the financial support for the show and ask for your support even more. Talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to today's show. If you'd like to contact me personally, my email address is joshua at radicalpersonalfinance.com. You can also connect with the show on Twitter at RadicalPF and at Facebook.com slash RadicalPersonalFinance. This show is intended to provide entertainment, education, 
and financial enlightenment. But your situation is unique, and I cannot deliver any actionable advice without knowing anything about you. Please, develop a team of professional advisors who you find to be caring, competent, and trustworthy, and consult them because they are the ones who can understand your specific needs, your specific goals, and provide specific answers to your questions. I've done my absolute best to be clear and accurate in today's show, but I'm one person and I make mistakes. If you spot a mistake in something I've said, please help me by coming to the show page and commenting so we can all learn together. Until tomorrow, thanks for being here.